Brazil, my Brazilian Brazil. Those are the opening lines of Aquarela do Brazil, a classic tune by composer Ari Barroso. It was made famous in the U.S. by a 1942 Walt Disney movie called Saludos Amigos. The film stars Donald Duck as he travels around Latin America. At the end of the film, Donald ends up in Rio de Janeiro. There, he meets a well-dressed parrot named Zé Carioca, who gives him a musical introduction to the city. Or, as you Americans say, huh? let's go see the town. Okay, so, where do we go? Donald, I will show you the land of the samba. Samba? What samba? Hello, I'm Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. And that is our question today. What is Samba? And how did it come to be? I tell you, we have a big journey in store for you today on this special Hip Deep edition. An in-depth exploration of Samba's early history, bringing you the people, places and stories behind the creation of Brazil's most iconic sound. To bring you those stories, we'll travel back in time to the Rio de Janeiro of the early 20th century, the Rio of lavish casinos and seedy corner bars, of sly sambistas and powerful senators, and back to the glamorous golden age of radio. And plus, we'll speak with leading experts in Brazilian music and some of the top samba musicians in Rio today. All that coming up on Samba at the Dawn of Modern Brazil. So don't touch that dial. To get us started, here is a samba from Wilson Moreira and Ney Lopez. Ao povo em forma de arte. Quilombo Pesquisou suas raízes Nos momentos mais felizes De uma raça singular E veio Pra mostrar esta pesquisa Na ocasião precisa Em forma de arte popular A mais, a mais Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the New York Council for the Humanities, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Well, before we go any further, we're going to hand things over to our producer, Marlon Bishop. We sent Marlon down to Rio to do research for this episode. He tells us what cariocas, as Rio natives are known, have to say about their hometown sound today. As far back as anyone can seem to remember, the Clube Renascença in Rio's Villa Isabel neighborhood has hosted a famous samba party on Monday afternoons. It's called the Samba de Trabalhador, the workers' samba, because of its timing right after the workday ends. 
Rodrigo Lopez says he stops by every week on his way home from the office. Generally, the people who come here know each other. They like samba, and it's a relaxed vibe. It's a way to start the week off right. On any given day in Rio, there's a lot of parties like this one you can go to, whether you're in the beach districts of the Zona Sul or in one of Rio's hillside favelas. Most people know that samba is Brazilian, but that's only partially true. Samba is carioca, from Rio. Sure, most Brazilians have some connection to the music, but in Rio, samba is quite literally in the air and in the streets, and as a lot of people will try to tell you, it runs in the blood. You're born a sambista. Someone who's a sambista doesn't choose. He just is one. Or put it this way. If you're born in Rio, you're a sambista. This is Binho Gibanjo, a 19-year-old samba musician I met in Osvaldo Cruz, in the city's northern suburbs. Here, they do a samba roda the old-fashioned way. The musicians seated around an outdoor table with no microphones in sight. Oftentimes, you can barely hear the instruments. The real volume comes from the crowd that gathers around the table. Here's Paulo Sechicordas, a well-known guitarist and samba producer. Sometimes those five musicians can draw out a thousand people to drink beer, sing, have fun, and dance. Dancing and singing samba, it's almost the same thing. Many of Brazil's samba legends were raised in this part of the city. One of them is Dona Yvoni Lara. She's one of samba's most celebrated composers and singers. And at 91 years old, she can still carry a tune. My story is samba. I began very early, and today I continue alongside samba, wherever it goes. Dona Yevoni has written songs for some of Brazil's biggest stars, but she never left the neighborhood for an apartment downtown. Like many sambistas, she chose to remain in the community where she was raised. Another great thing about the samba is that it's a meeting place to talk and hang out. Sometimes you can spend hours at the hall chit-chatting. There is always people there, relatives, friends, your friends' children who are just starting to play. Parents, amigos, filhos de amigos que começam a tocar. Don't get me wrong, not everybody in Rio loves samba. But for those that do, it's a deep link to their history and identity as cariocas. Somehow, the crowd at a samba joda always seems to know all the words to every song, many of which were composed as far back as the 30s or 40s. Imagine if Americans across lines of class and race and educational backgrounds frequently got together on street corners to sing 80-year-old songs about our collective history. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, but that's kind of exactly what samba is.
did this musical culture come to exist? Well, here to help us answer that question is Georgetown University professor Brian McCann. I think the one thing most gringos recognize when they go to Brazil and go out to these samba clubs is that it's amazing how many people of all different generations and backgrounds are singing the same songs. Brian is the author of the book Hello, Hello Brazil, popular music in the making of modern Brazil. There's a common body of popular cultural knowledge that is formed in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and then becomes the popular cultural legacy shared by almost all Brazilians. And Brian says this didn't happen so much because of politics or economics, but because of ideas. Ideas of what Afro-Brazilian culture meant in Brazil, ideas of who could play samba, who could share samba, what it meant to this relationship between popular culture and Brazilian national identity. To really understand where samba comes from, we need to go way back in time, back to the days of the Brazilian Empire. Yes, you heard right, Empire. Brazil is the only country in the Americas to ever have its own king. And during the Napoleonic Wars, Portugal's king, João, fled Europe and moved his court to Rio. In 1822, his son, Pedro, revolted against his father and declared himself king of Brazil. And where you have kings? Well, you need musicians to play the courtly dances, of course. Imagine a musician who's part black, part indigenous, and part European, totally mixed, with all this different cultural information. This is Luciana Habello, a musician and educator who has done a lot of research on 19th century Brazilian music. He's given polkas, French waltzes, and he has to play this music. Luciana is demonstrating a polka for us on her cavaquinho, a tiny guitar used in samba. Well, imagine something like a ukulele. He plays of sheet music, but of course when he plays it, he lends a different accent to it. He begins to compose something that he knows isn't polka anymore, but he doesn't know what it is either. It's polka with a swing. A bunch of new rhythms come about in this period, but it's that swinging polka that really sticks. It becomes known as the machiche. The most famous machiche composer of the 19th century was Ernesto Nazareth, although he probably wouldn't want you to call him that. Machiche was considered low-class music at the time. This is a recording of Nazareth himself playing his composition, Escovado, in 1907.
was Rafael Habello and Dino Secicordas playing a Mashiche by Ernesto Nazareth. I'm Georges Collinet. You're listening to Afropop Worldwide as we explore the early history of samba in Rio de Janeiro. And to find out more about the music in this program, well, stop by afropop.org. All right, so in 1888, Brazil abolishes slavery. One year later, King Pedro is overthrown and Brazil becomes a republic. Freed slaves from Bahia begin to migrate south and settle in Rio, especially around the downtown plaza called Praça Onze. Producer Marlon Bishop picks up the story. If you drive around looking for Praça Onze today, you won't have much luck. The neighborhood that gave birth to Samba was demolished in the 40s. Today, there's a large boulevard in its place. But back at the turn of the 20th century, it looked a little different. Here's scholar Brian McCann. In the early 20th century, it was mostly uh, one- and two-story townhouses around a fairly humble plaza, uh, just a, a few blocks north of downtown. So it's very densely populated with a lot of coming and going from all different walks of life. The neighborhood's most famous residents were the Baianas, Afro-Brazilian women from Bahia, who traditionally wore white headdresses and colorful head wraps. The most famous Baiana of all was Chia Siata. She had been settled in Rio since the 1880s, and her house at Praza Onzi became a kind of home base for black musicians in town. And there's wild parties there, rent parties every weekend that become a forum for this musical innovation. Chia Siata's parties were famously cosmopolitan affairs where all sorts of people showed up. Take it from Eitor Zinho, whose father, Eitor dos Prazeres, was an important musician in the Praza Onzi scene. The children of high society were tired of the same old salons. They found out about these places and began to show up. They were university students and artists. For Afro-Brazilian musicians, those connections could pay off. There's a famous story about percussionist Joao da Baiana. One day, he gets arrested by the police, who were often harassing sambistas, and they take away his pandeiro, the tambourine-shaped samba drum. He complained about that to Pinheiro Machado, who was the most powerful senator in Brazil at the time. Uh, and Pinheiro Machado sent him a new pandeiro with his own autograph on it, and that would serve as kind of protection for João da Baiana. So, the musicians from this scene, Sinho, Pichinguinha, etc., were playing with different groups around town, in Rio's cafes and cinemas. Eventually, in 1916, one of the musicians from this bunch named Donga wrote a song called Pelo Telefoni. It was a song about a new invention, the telephone, and it was a big hit that year in Carnival. Dongo went to the National Library to register it, and under genre, he marked samba. So uh, Pelo Telefone was the first time when someone recorded a song 
and said to everybody, this is a samba, and it was a huge success. This is Brazilian ethnomusicologist Carlos Sandroni. He's the author of a book in Portuguese about early samba history called Fechiso de Senchi. When you listen to Pelo Telefone today, uh, you don't think it is a samba. It's true. Most people today say that Pelo Telefone sounds more like a mashishi, that swinging polka we talked about earlier. They were in the process of defining samba. Pelo Telefone was kind of a first try. Some years later, another group gave it a shot. In the beginning of the 30s, you have a new generation. And this new generation began, let's say, in the neighborhood of the Estácio de Sá. Estácio is another working-class neighborhood close to downtown Rio, and it's home to the very first samba school. Called Deixa Falar. Deixa Falar means let them talk. So the Estácio guys are teaching people how to play samba for carnival, and they begin to play it in a different way using a whole bunch of new percussion instruments. They began to invent and to imagine and to recreate another uh, pattern. You can hear the tambourine, which is a little drum, a little hand drum, important in samba. You can hear the surdo, which is a, a big drum, very important in samba. They also use the pandeiro. And, who could forget, the cuica. Lyrically, they make it simpler. Rhythmically, they make it more complex. And this has the collective effect of kind of breathing new air into samba. The first recording with the new Estacio sound was made by the singer Amiranchi and his banda Gitangaras in 1930. It's called Napavona, and it's not far off from the samba played in Rio today. Like any really good idea, the Estacio samba rhythm spread quickly. Something big had arrived. A version of Napavona from the 50s by Osa Cholaiches. And before that, a version by Carolina Cardoso. 
the Estacio Samba would eventually become the sound of radio and film in Brazil in the 30s and 40s. But it wasn't the only thing going on. Pichinquinha was probably the best-known musician from the Praça Onsi scene. As Samba was getting more focused on the vocals and the rhythms, he took his music in a different direction. He composed tunes with complex, twisting melodies and lots of harmonies. And today, this style is known as Choro, and it's Rio's great instrumental tradition. You could maybe think of it as the jazz of Brazil. This track is called Umacero. That was Umacero by Pichinquinha, the godfather of Choro. Although now they are thought of as different genres, Choro and Samba evolved side by side. Here's Brian McCann. I would say that it's crucial that in that period those two scenes are very much overlapping. What Pichinguinha himself said later is that, oh yeah, at those parties of the Bayanas we played Choro in the living room and Samba out on the back patio. Which is to say that Choro is our polite indoor music and Samba is the funky stuff we play outside. But Samba wasn't the only thing happening out back. Bayanas brought their Afro-Brazilian religious traditions with them when they came from the north. In fact, it is said that Chiasiata was a Maiji Santo, a spiritual leader in the Candomblé religion. In the back of the yard, they would have the Candomblé rituals. They had a place to kill the chickens to give us offerings, and right behind there, they would have the samba circles. E do lado em frente ali da matança tinha uma uma roda de samba e tal e lá no fundo o ritual, né? This is Retorzinho do Praceres again. He says that all the early samba musicians, Pichinguinha included, played drums for religious ceremonies. E no, no descanso disso, então se improvisava. In the breaks between rituals, they would play music with claps, with drums, playing on pots and pans, and the man, the samba composers, would improvise verses. Etorzinho says that these improvised jam sessions evolved into samba. In fact, many musicians today will tell you the same thing that Samba was born in the Teheru, or Candomblé Temple. Here's Paulao Sechicordas. It's totally connected to Candomblé, Jongo, Batuki, these styles. Samba is created out of variations of those rhythmic cells. So more than having this Brazilianness, Samba is representative of black culture, isn't it? One of the styles Paolo mentioned is jongo, thought to be of Samba's rhythmic precursors. 
It's a style of Bantu origin that was played by enslaved Africans in southern Brazil. Jongo has practically been lost, but one group in Rio is working to revive it. This is a track from Jongo da Serinha. Music from Jongo da Serrinha. This is Samba at the Dawn of Modern Brazil, an Afropop Hip Deep special. And by the way, to read interviews with our scholars and reports from our recent trip to Brazil, visit our website, afropop.org. And coming up, we visit the radio industry of Old Rio, meet the malandro, and follow Samba history as it evolves into the defining sound of Rio and Brazil. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. In the early 1930s, samba was pulsing across Rio's favelas and working-class neighborhoods. It might have stayed there if it wasn't for a little device called the radio. One radio station had by far the biggest impact on shaping popular music tastes in Rio and Brazil. It was called Radio Nacional. Its golden age was long ago, but Radio Nacional is still around today. Producer Marlon Bishop went down to the station to check it out. The Radio Nacional building in downtown Rio was South America's first skyscraper, built in 1927. And if you visit today, you can kind of tell. The elevators rattle on their way up, and there's a dusty feeling in the air. The hallways are filled with posters of Golden Age stars, flashing fading smiles at visitors as they pass. It's like a place that time forgot. But if you enter one of the wood-paneled studios, you'll see there are signs of life after all. In one studio, musicians rehearse for a live broadcast later in the week. The backing band here today is the Epoca Gioru, the legendary Shoro group founded by Jacob du Bandolin in the 1950s. They had a popular show on Radio Nacional, and while the personnel has changed a bit, the group still performs regularly on the radio. It's a little hard to imagine now, but Radio Nacional was once the centerpiece of Rio's glamorous entertainment industry. (laughs) 
Radio singers like Marlini and Emilinia were massive celebrities. There were radio fan clubs, radio magazines, and films all about radio stars. The glowing heart of the whole system was Radio Nacional's 500-seat auditorium, where fans would flock to see live performances day in and day out. Here's Idolaji Chioso. Então a, a multidão começava na quarta-feira a comprar o ingresso para entrar no sábado. On Wednesday, the crowd started to buy tickets for Saturday. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they stayed there sleeping in the streets waiting to get in. Everybody came to Rádio Nacional. Idolaji would know she was one of the stars they came to see. Radio Nacional actually still does these live programs. Now they're all about bringing in voices from the past, like Idolaji, to sing to nostalgic crowds. When Radio Nacional first started in 1936, there actually wasn't anything nacional about it. It only broadcasted in Rio. But by the early 40s, it was transmitting throughout the country. According to Cristiano Menezes, the current director of the station, it was the first organ of mass media that reached all of Brazil. We often say here that Rádio Nacional showed Brazil to the Brazilian. It built or helped to strengthen the idea of the nation. And it absolutely helped to strengthen samba as this thing of national identity. Uma, uma identidade é, é nacional. Rádio Nacional played samba, and lots of it. One of the great samba radio stars was Francisco Alves. He sang this hit, Se Você Jurar. Francisco Alves sang great sambas, but he didn't write his own hits. He bought them from a composer named Ismael Silva. Brian McCann says that Alves had something of an unfair leg up in the industry. He's actually from a working-class background, but he very successfully obscures that by constantly riding around in a limousine and always wearing very well-tailored suits. Whereas Ismael Silva is from the favela, and he's got no real possibility of becoming a radio star in the 1930s. There's no point mincing words. That's because Alves was white and Silva was black. In fact, most samba composers at the time were Afro-Brazilians and didn't have an opportunity to get in front of the cameras. This is probably a good time to mention something called the myth of racial democracy. 
It's basically the idea that Brazilians are blind to race, and you hear it a lot. For example, here's Marcelo Bernardes, a prominent choro musician from Rio. For me, the, the main strength of Brazilian music is the love uh, above racial difference, the love between races, and the celebration of this love in music and dance and singing. There is a lot of truth to what Marcelo says. Brazilians, across the board, are really proud of Afro-Brazilian culture. But that doesn't mean there's no racism. Samba scholar Samuel Araujo says discrimination happens every day at his apartment building in Rio. In, in any private building, a thing called a service entrance, which is reserved to the people who work in the residences. And this is usually used by the building porters and so on to send people of color, you know? So if you are a black lawyer and you are visiting your friend, you'll be directed to the, the service entrance. The hard thing about addressing these issues is that for many Brazilians, it's almost taboo to suggest that the racial democracy isn't real. If you're thinking, what does all this have to do with samba, the answer is a lot, actually. Rádio Nacional happened to be owned by a guy named Getúlio Vargas, who ruled Brazil as a populist dictator on and off for almost 25 years. E para dizer que voltei, a fim de defender os interesses mais legítimos do povo e promover as medidas indispensáveis ao bem-estar dos trabalhadores. Here he is giving a speech in 1951, talking up the virtues of the Brazilian worker. When Vargas came into power in 1930, he was in a rough situation. The previous government was tied to rich landowners in the countryside, so we needed to find new allies. Here's Samuel Araujo. And he made a revolution against his interests. He had to find other supporters for his modernizing regime. Those new supporters were workers in the cities, many of whom were black. And that changed the way the political class talked about race in Brazil. Here's Brian McCann. What's becoming prominent in the 1930s is this idea that Brazil is culturally strong in large part because of its Afro-Brazilian inheritance. And that that cultural strength is what's going to make Brazil distinctive among modern nations and is going to help to make it a competitor among modern nations in other ways politically, economically, etc. So many ideologists of the new state, Estado Novo, started fabricating this idea of the new Brazilian identity that now co-opted uh, black culture to some degree. And the example of black culture co-opted in that way was precisely samba. The Estado Novo helped push samba as national culture. Soon enough, samba wasn't seen as a black thing anymore. It was a Brazilian thing for everybody to take part in. Case in point, Carmen Miranda. Miranda was neither black or even Brazilian. She was born in Portugal. But in the Brazil of the 1930s, that didn't stop her from becoming the queen of samba. Carmen Miranda with Adeus Batucada. 
One of the first white Brazilians to become prominent as a samba composer was Noel Rosa. He started out as a med school student, but it quickly became clear that the studious life was not for him. Brian McCann. His jaw was crushed uh, at birth, and so he was disfigured, and as a result of that, he always had tremendous insecurity and didn't like to be seen in the daylight. But at night, he would be free to become himself out in the cabarets and the dive bars. Instead of becoming a doctor, Osa became a gifted lyricist with a knack for capturing the poetry of daily life. One of his best love songs was Conversa Jibo Chekim, about the banter at one of Rio's many corner bars. Conversa Jibo Chekim, written by Noel Rosa. One of Rosa's favorite topics to write about was the malandru. The malandru is an important character archetype in samba. He's a kind of rogue, a trickster. A kind of tough guy, but a debonair tough guy. Uh, a tough guy who wears a scarf around his neck and who wears well-shined shoes and has a kind of uh, high-stepping, swinging way of walking through the streets of downtown Rio. The malandru typically lived in a favela, but wasn't interested in breaking his back at a low-wage job. He got by with his wits, even if that meant breaking the law here and there. But they're also associated with samba, because this is what they do. They hang out in bars or on street corners, uh, shaking a matchbox in a samba rhythm, and singing sambas and inventing sambas. The malandru becomes such a beloved character in Rio that a whole genre of malandru samba emerges. I would say later in the 1930s you start to get more complex songs that are linking this idea of the malandru to an idea of national identity and seeing Brazil itself in some ways as a malandru. Being a malandro starts to be seen as being a good thing because it means being clever, being crafty and stylish all at the same time. One of the masters of the genre was Wilson Batista, who composed the classic malandro samba, Chico Brito. This is a cover from 1979 by Paulinho da Viola. Lá vem o Chico Brito Descendo o morro nas mãos do Peçanha É mais um processo É mais uma façanha Chico Brito fez do baralho Seu melhor esporte É valente no morro Dizem que fuma uma erva do norte Lá vem o Chico Brito Descendo o morro nas mãos do Peçanha É mais um processo É mais uma façanha Chico Brito Chico Brito, composed by Wilson Batista. 
Malandro samba was sometimes used to inject critiques of Brazil in a subtle way. For example, the lyrics to Chico Brito are about a guy from the favela who starts out as a good kid, but becomes a troublemaker. He smokes marijuana and always gets in trouble with the cops. And the last line of the song asks the question, if a man is born good, but society turns him bad, is it his fault or society's fault? Hmm, good question. But I tell you, it wasn't the kind of question that Brazil's autocratic president wanted to hear. Marlon Bishop picks up the story. It's not surprising that Getulio Vargas wasn't so into the malandro. Here's Heterzinho dos Prazeres. In the 50s and in the end of the 40s, the government was promoting the worker. Vargas was on a mission to industrialize and modernize Brazil, and the malandro was celebrated in part for avoiding work entirely. There was even music commissioned by the government to say, no, let's value the worker, we're going to leave the malandro life aside. Censorship was actually pretty uncommon under Vargas, but he ordered his Department of Propaganda and Cultural Diffusion to put an end to the malandro. Suddenly, composers like Wilson Batista were making songs like Bonji du Sao Januario. It's about a reformed malandro who goes to catch the trolley and tells the driver, take one more laborer, I'm going to work. At carnival time, sambas were expected to have nationalistic overtones as well. And it's kind of understood that in this context of a populist dictatorship, they have to be patriotic, they have to be jingoistic, they have to be about how great Brazil is in one aspect or another. That's one of the rules imposed by the local government when they start sponsoring the samba school competition in 1934. The most patriotic kind of samba of all, however, was the genre of samba exaltação, or exaltation samba. It was defined by sweeping orchestral arrangements and lyrics about Brazil's splendor as a nation, often playing up the country's Afro-Brazilian heritage. The classic example is Aquarela do Brasil by Ari Barroso, the song we played at the beginning of this show. Aquarela do Brasil ignited something of a samba craze in the United States. Bajoso was briefly scooped up by Walt Disney to compose for him in Los Angeles. Casino star Carmen Miranda also left for Hollywood, where she made a career playing bad stereotypes of South Americans on film. The gentlemen, they want to make me say, see, see, but I don't tell them that, I tell them, yes, sorry. And maybe that is why they come for dates to me, the lady in the tutti-frutti hat. By the time she got to the lady in the tutti-frutti hat, she had strayed pretty far from her somber roots. When Miranda returned to Brazil, she was booed off the stage. 
Coincidence or not, around the same time that Carmen Miranda was dancing in a fruit hat overseas, Geraldo Pereira wrote a famous tune called Falsa Baiana. Which is about a woman who dresses up in the costume of a Baiana for carnival, but people call on her to dance, and it turns out she can't actually dance the samba. She's not good at it, and it just kind of leaves a blah feeling for everybody. Then a real Bahian woman comes into the samba circle to dance, and everybody comes to life. So it contrasts real samba to fake samba. And it's very clear in the lyrics that the false Bayana is white, and the real Bayana is black. So Geraldo Pereira is, is posing for us this question of what does the nationalization of samba mean? Falsa Baiana, composed by Geraldo Pereira and sung by Najinho da Ilha. Almost a century after Donga wrote Pelo Telefone in the tenements of Praça Onze, Samba has its day, and I mean that literally. Every year, December 2nd is celebrated as the National Day of Samba. Rio's government sets up a big stage in front of the central train station and packs it with performers. Mano, desce da viola! Cartola! Palmo da portela, nosso professor! The MC does a kind of roll call, listing the names of great samba composers as if they were the names of cherished family members. And in a way, they are. Their poetry is carried around the city by millions of cariocas every day and recalled nightly at the samba circles. Their words have become part of the city's architecture, its DNA. Headlining act is the Velia Guarda da Portela. A dozen men in crisp blue suits and fedoras walk onto the stage. All samba legends from the 60s and 70s. They are greeted with huge applause. This hero's welcome for these Afro-Brazilian men is made possible by the cultural transitions of the early 20th century, which brought samba to the forefront of Brazilian culture. Nothing about this transition does away with the reality of racism in Brazil. But it does very profoundly change the way Brazilians think about black Brazilians and Afro-Brazilian culture. And it does make possible this acceptance of Afro-Brazilian culture as the national culture. Finally, to answer our question from the beginning of our show... Ethnomusicologist Samuel Araujo has one answer for us. 
He says samba is a debate. Samba is a big debate over these issues, the echoes of slavery, Brazilian politics, the commodification of popular culture in general. What is samba? It's a big debate about living together in Rio de Janeiro and Brazil. Procurando meu abrigo Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the New York Council for the Humanities, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, the Nathan Cummings Foundation, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations across the country. Thanks for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Shanaki Records, presenting the best of South African vocal legends Ladysmith Black Mambazo, available at Amazon.com. Thanks to Valerie Magzak, Brian McCann, Matthew Bishop, Natasha Fink, Chris Dunn, Carlos Sandroni, Samuel Araujo, and all of our many wonderful interviewees for their help with this program. Extra special thanks to Elise Dietrich and the Brazilian Consulate of New York. Visit afropop.org to find pictures, videos, blog posts, and interviews from our recent trip to Rio. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Marlon Bishop. Join us next time for Roots Reinvented in Mali and Egypt. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Michael Johnson. Benning Air edits our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Saxon Baird. And I'm Georges Collinet. Public Radio International.